Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today is Mark Palmer. He's the managing partner and product development at Higher Direction, and Eddie Moore, who's a senior consultant with ILI and the founder of Moore Consulting, and an expert in organization design and transformation. Today, we're gonna be talking about creating future-ready leaders and organizations. What does it mean to be future-ready and how can you do it? So welcome to you both. Let's start with you, Eddie. Hello, I'm actually excited to be part of the uh, Marine Metcalf experience. And when I think about future ready, I'm reminded of an article by Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, in troubled times, there's an urgency to understand ourselves in our world. And when I think about some of the issues that are coming at leaders, it really made me think of that quote and the importance of being just really grounded as a leader and who you are. So, you know, think mentally and emotionally grounded of your purpose, spiritually grounded and physically grounding as a way to kind of prepare you to adapt to these chaotic and all these trends and issues that are coming at leaders nowadays that they haven't necessarily experienced in the past. So having that core foundation to fall back on, I think is important. Beautiful. Thank you. And we'll delve more into that when we talk about what does a future ready leader look like. And Mark Palmer, welcome back. Thank you. It is nice to have you rejoining the conversation as a long-term collaborator, co-author of the seminal Innovative Leadership Field book, and a friend of the firm. So welcome. Thank you. Great to be part of these conversations, always. You know, it's a very intense time for leadership. Leaders today are inheriting a lot of these age-old issues and uncertainty, but also have their own version of accelerated complexity, largely due to technology. This is something that you and I have written about, Marine, in the past. So it's an incredibly intense time. I really think that we're sort of at a tipping point with both the things in the past, in terms of what leaders are inheriting, and going forward, the uncertainty is just going to speed up. So very much looking forward to this conversation. I think we're going to be able to tease out some really interesting insights. Thank you. And so we're going to talk about six different topics as we think about what are future-ready leaders and organizations. Mark, tell us what the PSI is and how you use your tool to help calibrate what does future-ready look like for leaders. Yeah. PSI is a organizational model that we use to help leaders and organizations get oriented with some type of common landscape in the world of work. Part of the challenge that we find with clients and just with markets in general is that leadership is largely subjective in some sense. Leaders are oftentimes forced to define realities based off of their own vacuumed experience or some of their own limited perspectives. The challenge is Everyone's talking about leadership and trying to make sense of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and so on, but largely without using a map. Imagine for a second in any endeavor trying to have a conversation. Let's use something like sports, for example, because it's pretty common and a lot of people can relate to it. Imagine not having a common field or a common setup. There's two sides. There's two teams. Typically, you take something like American football. There's offense and defense. There's a cadence to it. Everybody knows what that is. Everybody knows what it looks like. So you can have a conversation about it and you can very quickly get into a very meaningful conversation because everyone understands the landscape. 
They understand the cartography of the sport itself. What we find is a challenge in leadership, not only today, but I think historically always, is that we're sort of behind the eight ball in getting really to the heart of anything because everyone's sort of coming from different semantic ground. We're not coming from a common ground. So we don't really know what the sport is that we're playing. We're defining things completely different. We're not defining realities. So a lot of our work is spent really trying to create a comprehensive, holistic map, micro to macro, that deals with leaders in terms of their individual selves, the cultures, and the systems that they have to navigate, and create a map that gives a universal model of work, the landscape of work, if you will. Because without that landscape of work, no one can really have a meaningful conversation. So part of what we try to do is to get people aligned and oriented in the first place to figure out where they need to go, figure out what their current state is, how they're defining uh, realities, how they're going to define metrics. None of that can really get off the ground until we create that map. So PSI is a one version of a model that attempts to create a unified theory of work and a unified map of work to get people oriented in a way that's going to be meaningful for future conversations. No small undertaking. Not at all. <laughs> well, and let me say a little bit about how I use it before we jump into Eddie's comments, because there's a significant overlap with org design. So when I start working with a client organization, I always map the leadership group, whomever I'm working with, and try to understand what their orientation is. So we've got people who fall into a category of stabilizer. And if the organization has been relatively stable over time, or if that person is responsible for creating some of the constructs and the processes that produce stability, that's a right fit for that box. If you've got someone whose job is setting the vision for the organization, you want them to be more in the visionary quadrant. If they're in the stabilizer quadrant and you're in times of volatility, they're not likely to move you forward in the way that you would like. And if they're in the visionary quadrant and you're expecting them to be more stable, they're also going to be a bad fit. At least as I use it, it's really to help understand who's on the board, to use a chess metaphor, and which roles are they playing so that we can ensure alignment. There isn't necessarily a bad place to be on the board That's right. unless you're behind enemy lines. That's right. It's really about fit and alignment, not good and bad. That's right. A lot of the issue that we find without this mapping is that you really don't have a full grasp of the terrain itself. And there are very specific questions that leaders have to ask in terms of assessing risk, assessing opportunities. And without that type of map, you just don't have visibility to very specific realities that are fundamental to an organization's ability to be effective. So there are market realities. So this map, for example, it has landscape reflecting the various market forces, the commercial facing things that organizations have to be privy to. And Maureen, you mentioned something around vision. So there is a visionary zone for this type of thing, you know, what we call the innovator zone. But then there's also a strategy zone, which is more about implementation. And there are very specific types of questions and realities and situations that leaders have to consider that are just market facing alone. Then, of course, on the other end of that, there are more operations facing realities that they also have to consider that have to do with, and Marine, you mentioned one, stabilization, 
So this is going to be largely administration, maintenance, continuity, sustainability, and then continuous improvement. QA type of, of reality of, hey, how can, from a process standpoint, what are the processes in place? How can we continue to get better? How are we producing quality, not just productivity, but also quality? So part of this mapping of reality is ensuring that leaders have the comprehensive scope. They have the full scope of reality to talk about in the first place, and nothing's left off the table. Thank you. Eddie, let's now shift to you. So we've got Mark with the comprehensive map. But as you walk into a client now in this volatile, uncertain environment, what are you thinking about with regard to how do we identify to use the Collins who's on the bus right now? Well, I think one of the things that I appreciate about Mark's framework is it, it kind of gives you that framework to say, as you're designing the details of your organization, and in the org design world, we call it micro design, where you really kind of outline your work and then how you want to best structure that with some pros and cons. And then you start getting into what are the jobs and roles that are needed to perform this work? And with Mark's framework, you can start looking at the jobs that you're creating and saying, okay, now who can best fit in this? If we're creating a high-level manager job, you know, using the framework to help assess what type of person is going to best kind of fit in that role. So as you, it helps you think about the implementation of your design and who are potential, uh, Mark mentioned the analogy of a uh, you know, football team. So as a football team, you basically got your roles in your positions and the framework then helps you say, well, I'm not going to put a, a big heavy lineman over in a tight end or a wide receiver position because they just don't have the skills to do that. But what I love about Mark's framework is it allows you to take a look at the jobs and roles that be created and then help you think about, well, who can best play those roles? And then to your point, there's a chicken in the egg when you think about who's on the bus. So a lot of leaders will say, well, first I need to get the right people on the bus. In work design, it's a little bit of, yes, you know, from a leadership perspective, I may say, yeah, I want to get my coaching staff together first, who's going to be on the bus. And then my coaching staff and I are going to get together and decide who are the players, how are we going to design offense and defense and who are the players. So when people say get the right people on the bus, there's layers to that. Who's on the bus? Who's going to help me design it? In an ideal world, what you want in org design is you want to expand your level involvement. So you may start out with your executive team designing what we call, again, the macro level, starting with your strategy. What are your capabilities and working into organizing structures? And then at some point you say, okay, we got to put a halt here. Now we need to bring the le next layer of the organization, middle management layer, and leave some design work for them throughout the process. You're bringing in HR to help guide you through the selection and, and fitment for placement. So that's some high level thinking when I think about org design, future ready, and kind of who's on the bus. So as we then think about moving from future-ready leaders to organizations, Eddie, I'm going to go back to you because I think you started with that and realized that I have no idea what the difference is between a lineman and a tight end. <laughs> but it's probably some of our listeners have about as much football acumen as I do, which would be uh, not much. <laughs> Part of the reason I ask this is you know, especially right now, I, I've been reading all this stuff on chat GPT and how jobs are changing and quickly and how I'm working is changing. So it's not 
a robot that's scraping the concrete in front of our house. It's the group of us and some of our listeners who are going to do their work differently. So how do we think about the span of control and what gets done by humans and what gets done by bots? I was in a conversation yesterday with an investment firm, and they have a platform of 122 different AI companies, and they're talking about the AI ecosystem. So I realize we're really early in this conversation and don't know. It's the Wild West still. And someone hires you tomorrow to come in and design their organization. I assume that you are designing it in a way that is future looking, even though we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So when I think about future ready organizations, really the, the number one thing that jumps out for me is what I'm going to you know call the sense making capability. And it's something really new as far as the process of org design. But when I really kind of put my org design hat on and you think about today's world and with so many changes happening, so much information available, one of the tenets of org design is thinking of an organization as a data processing machine. Good org design is about how does the flow of information go through the organization? And when I think about you know, what's termed the VUCA world, what's happening globally, and how do you make sense of all that as an organization? So number one, a lot of times when you think about organizations, there's structures and there's boundaries. How do you make those boundaries permeable so that the information can flow into the organization? So when you think about sense-making, as an organization, I'm going to be working with leaders to say, how are we letting information outside of our organization in? And you look down your supply chain, your value chain, you look at your partners and saying, how are we bringing information and insights that they have into our organization? How does that flow through whether it's a service or a product? And that's really the art of organization design is looking at the flow of information and saying, how can we make this information flow as expediently as possible and create value so that somebody buys? Again, that's kind of the conceptual, but again, for me, the two things are sense-making capability, which has some process and roles to it. And then this notion of, you know, whenever you are designing an organization and you talk about structures, there are always boundaries. And then we talk about lateral processes and how are we going to cross these physical boundaries sometimes in organizations, but oftentimes they're just mental boundaries. It could be a mindset of, well, I worked in this department, so I don't make an effort. You know, I'm in marketing. I don't make an effort to work with finance. Well, in today's world, you need to be able to do that, right? Be able to cross-pollinate, share ideas, help the organization process information, make decisions as quickly as possible. So as you say that, I'm thinking of a client now, they're in a manufacturing arena and supply chain. So if they are connected through their enterprise software, they should be able to, when they get in order, connect to their suppliers and the people they supply should be able to have some insight into lag time. So I know I need to place an order six months in advance now because of supply chain constraints that we're all facing. And it used to be three months. So my suppliers now and my partners, that they really are more partners. So as you talk about mindsets and barriers, that is really shifting right now. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, I mean, you look at what's termed the supply chain issues. How great if you're a company you knew ahead of time 
that your supplier was having some problems. That gives you the ability to adjust, look for additional sources or make some other arrangements. In many cases, they're industry-wide. So if you're having issues, then I'm probably having issues too. And we collaborate to solve them rather than you dump me and go find someone else. Yep. A term that's probably overused, but it's the, you know, the learning in the agile organization. It's both the mindset of, hey, I'm thinking about my organization beyond its traditional boundaries, and I'm collaborating upstream in my supply chain. We're having discussions, we're planning together, and we're able to adjust, right? So it's that mindset is, oh, we have to have a plan B. That's the other thing I would think of when they think about today's world and in the BUCA environment that we're in is that scenario, part of the sense making is what's the scenario planning that you're doing, you know, in your strategy is, okay, let's sit down and think about what are some things that in the past we wouldn't think would happen and how might we respond as an organization, right? You can do that with your executive team internally, and you can do it with your supply chain partners. Let's get together as a supply chain and series of partners and think about these scenarios ahead of time and how might we adjust if they do hit. Mark, certainly the PSI helps facilitate sense-making. Absolutely. I love that term. I love that Eddie leverages sense-making as a core component of org design and alignment. One of the things that we try to help leaders reframe and be more intentional about is the design of the organization itself, because they just never think in that flavor. Part of this is an engineering issue in some sense. It's a design issue. There are a lot of assumptions made as a leader. You get right into it and you go on and there are just certain types of ways of making sense of things that are just assumed. They're not really challenged or questioned. So part of the initial difficulty, and especially if an organization is ready, willing, and able, and you know, certainly we go through this initial cadence with our clients, is to say, listen, in order to be future ready, you have to be designed properly in the first place. A lot of organizations don't make it because they're designed poorly. They never had a chance. So forget about future stuff. You're not ready for the stuff right now. So if you're not ready for the stuff right now, how can you possibly be ready for the future? How can you possibly be responsive? If you don't understand how you're designed, which is intricately tied to the mission and vision of what the organization is and what it does, the design should follow that. I think there's a lot of conditioning and inheritance of how it's always been done. So we initially try to say, okay, before we focus on the future, let's focus on the now, and we'll kind of deal with things now, next, later. But right now, let's start to shift your thinking in terms of how you are designed right now, because we want to show those gaps. Because a lot of times we have clients that will say, hey, you know what, Mark, we want to improve this. We want to improve hiring. You know, we had a great organization also in manufacturing that said, hey, listen, we can't get the right person in our marketing role and we can't get the right person to oversee the manufacturing floor. There just aren't a lot of good people out there. So we say, okay, well, let's back up. Let's look at how you're designed in the first place. Let's look at the purview of marketing. Let's look at your product flow. Let's open everything up to see where some of these potential gaps are because you want to make improvements, but until you understand what you need to improve, how can you improve anything? So it's a very engineering-like approach. And in fact, we call it 
talent reliability engineering from, at least from the people standpoint. But creating reliability starts with those very design-oriented types of issues and getting past some of the assumptions that you're already designed properly to begin with. I had another client in the manufacturing space, and I said, oh, great. The initial conversation was about culture. You know, this person was the chief administrative officer at the time and said, oh, you know, our culture is great. We do these things. We do these things. I said, oh, it's great. It's wonderful. We like to look at self leaders as individuals, culture, and systems. So let's talk about systems a little bit. Scale one to 10, how do you feel you're set up to be able to be responsive to logistical challenges, uh, the manufacturing floor, on and on? And the person said, oh, well, we've got all that stuff. We've got all that stuff. So I think there was just a mindset of, okay, well, if you don't mind, what we'd like to do is to collaboratively walk with you and sort of just do a design audit. Let's look at actually how you're designed. And it's a painful exercise, but it's it's very informative. It's it's all, you know what it's like? It's like a health check. It's very humbling. It's like, you know, you go to one of these wellness exams and you figure out this thing's too high or this thing's too low. Or you, don't, you know, it's very humbling in one sense and a bit painful. But at the same time, you now know what you need to work on for optimization. So we go through a similar process. So to be a future-ready organization, it means being intentionally mindful of your current design. Because if you're not mindful of your current design, you can't be responsive to anything that comes up. So we try to impart uh, a design mentality. Eddie got into a bit of this in terms of processes and structures and roles and really thinking and laying out, uh, we've been using sports, I'll use music. What kind of composition do you want to write here? Is this Mozart? Is it Haydn? Is it Bach? What are you trying to impart here? What story are you trying to tell as an organization in the marketplace? Who are you trying to be? And that's going to dictate then how you structure you know, in this case, structure of the music. It affects what instrumentation you bring in. It affects the length of the score. All these things we see in the organization life is they're all relevant. It really, what you do in the market, the story that you're trying to tell in the market also needs to be reflected in the design of your organization. And so you should be able to say, hey, we're going to run this type of organization. Here's what it looks like in detail. And on the basis of that, then you can start to test properly. You can start to experiment properly. You can do things like fit to roll properly. So rather than relying on what is traditionally what we call heroics, for example, oh, we just haven't found the right person. And you get heroic centric. It's like, no, actually, this is the right role. And what we need to find is someone that has the right operational sense making that fits that role. Now you've already baked in things like succession planning because you've based it on the structural soundness of the design and the role rather than persona. That whole line of thinking is incredibly rare in the organizational space. We just don't think that way collectively. So that's a paradigm shift. That's some of the immense challenge that we deal with is that it is a paradigm shift, but I do think shifts like that, specifically when you hear them, they make sense, hopefully. And most of our clients, it does make sense. It goes, oh, I never looked at it like that. We always just look to the person first and then figure, well, if we have a good person, they can do everything. And so some of these things, we just need to turn on their head and say, hey, good performance is going to follow good design. Just like in a car, just like in a, a boat, any vehicle, right? An airplane. Good performance follows good design. So it's an engineering thing to some extent. And we try to, to be a future-ready organization. We try to impart that piece of 
of the equation. You actually ended your comments reminding me of there's a great saying, I don't know who to attribute to, but every organization is perfectly designed to get the results it's getting, <laughs> right? Look at parts of the organization. You can look financially, what, how are your results? You can look at engagement, depending on what filter you ask the question, well, are you getting the results you want? Then you can always go back to it, find the root cause analysis, and there's probably some design issue at play. Uh-huh. I love what you were saying there, and I was cheering in the background. <laughs> the other thing that you mentioned in the Future Ready Leader, Leaders need to know they have a role as being the architect Mm. of their organization. Yeah, yeah. Right? The people I talk to, it's not something that they learned getting their MBA or in school. And so for me, I think it's important as a leader to understand they have a role in being the architect of their department, team, or, you know, whatever level you are at as you progress in your career, the scope of your role as an architect increases uh-huh. and whether how they fill that role, you know, either be a consultants like us or they learn it themselves. I can share a quick story. I was working internally and the head of a department would make his annual trip to the chief administrative officer with his new work design. <laughs> and then she finally said, Hey, hold up on this. I need you to go talk to Eddie, talk to him about org design. We had a quick meeting. I said, we have two options. You and I can sit in a room and we can crank out a design. And you'll be done. Or we can go through a series of workshops to take your leadership team through it. He, what I thought wisely, chose the latter. Huh. And, you know, when I followed up with him a couple of years later, the continuous of, hey, here's my new structure. Things stopped. He would make some tweaks. And then a couple of years later, I ran into his successor, who was part of our org design team. And he was following the same methodology. So it's a skill that can be learned. Love that. You know, everybody, I think, experienced a whiplash in an organization where you swing from centralized to decentralized or <laughs> new leader comes in, first thing they do is change the structure. I was like, well, that's not where you start in the process. But we've all kind of experienced that. But anyway, for me, I thought it was a great example of through a, a series of workshops, they were able then to learn, transfer it, and even to do a successor in a scene, they went and started making small tweaks, which I think is really important. You know, when we talk about the VUCA world and being able to adapt quickly is the more you understand, as Mark was saying, the design of whether it's a vehicle or a team or something, the more you can make tweaks to it and the easier it is for you to make tweaks. I want to piggyback on that because I was in a conversation the other day where someone was recounting the cascading process, which I'm a big fan of. But what they didn't ask was what's missing or what's changing. So the people on my team told me to do this, and then they told me to do that, and then they told me to do that. But as the executive in the role of architect, if I hired Frank Lloyd Wright to design my house, I wouldn't want him to go to the builders to tell him how to do it. He needs to do that to make sure it's buildable. So there is that. And there is the very unique input of the architect that is also required and important that this is the signature of the Frank Lloyd Wright house. This is, in their case, in the VUCA world, what's missing that will really help us address all of our stakeholder needs that may not be in the standard model. 
So I think it's absolutely the cascading, but really to amplify your point of leader as architect, it's not just collecting and facilitating. It's also saying, what else do we need to accomplish this mission? And that was the piece that struck me as so crucial when the leader takes on truly that architect role. And I'm sure you did that when you were facilitating, Eddie. (laughs) But the point is not everyone does. (laughs) So we've talked about org design and org structure. Let's go to measurement. To your point, Eddie, that the organization gets exactly what it was designed to get. The processes get what they were designed to get. So using more of the design and engineering concepts as you are designing the organization, what kind of measures do you put in place to ensure that you are on track? What else? I personally am a big fan of the balanced scorecard approach. It's been around for years. If I look where the trends are going in the ESG world, environmental, social governance, adding to it, I guess the one thing I would say about metrics, I think of Stephen Covey as beginning with the end in mind. One of those things, it's extremely difficult to get a group to do to say, how are we going to measure the success of this new design? So in an ideal world, we sit down and we talk about the mission, vision, our strategic priorities, this thing, see, now how are you going to measure success? A lot of times, because they haven't gotten into details of what's that going to look like, they really struggle mm, yeah. with the metrics piece. So ideally, if you can get some conceptual thinkers that can, you know, hey, here are some early on metrics that we think will guide it. And again, like remember the, the balanced scorecard approach, right? You have your financial... You have your customer, your operations, and, oh, I'm forgetting the fourth quadrant. But basically what we do is we take the quadrant, you know, and say, okay, what are the metrics? And again, typically the groups can fill out their financial metrics real easily, start to struggling with the customer. Oftentimes you get into a great conversation of who is the customer. And even going to our earlier conversation about the supply chain, and your partners. So let's say it's not even customer anymore. It's who are your stakeholders? Mm-hmm. How are you going to keep track of what your organization is delivering to them? What's of value to them? And how are you going to measure what's delivered? Your uh, internal process improvement components, which is just, I think, just your traditionally your operational efficiencies. And again, somebody help me out with the fourth quadrant. <laughs> <laughs> is it people? Yeah. So, and again, you know, that's the, the big one that a lot of organizations are using, and I'm a big fan of the uh, the Galbraith approach, but the engagement. How are we doing in engaging our people? The other thing I would add to the metrics, for them to be effective, you have to tie the rewards. The challenge that most organizations have is we're still so tied to financial metrics, uh-huh. and that's what drives, or productivity metrics, that's what drives behavior. Quick story, working with a call center, most of their metrics were about the efficiency, how quickly are you turning calls and stuff, but their brand was really about the quality of the call. Yeah. So the effort was underway as, oh, and they what they realized when they dug into the data that some people were playing the system and saying, you know, if I can just pick up the call, say something and hang up, that shows I answered the call, my <laughs> <laughs> metric, but that didn't help the customer service, right? Yeah. They hung up. I mean, it's 
it's kind of the outlier, but I see you're all smirking, right? Because we all know how the game works, right? So it's, <laughs> for me, the alignment to brand, something that we don't often talk about in org design, but you have to consider the brand promise to your customer, which then translates to the brand promise to the employee. So as part of the people metric, you know, engagement, are you aligning your brand promise to the customer with your employment brands uh-huh. in your engagement? But it's that whole alignment factor. Yep. Strategically, we said we wanted this and how are the parts of our organization uh-huh. aligning or not aligning to help us achieve what we said we wanted to achieve? So I was uh, consulting to a military organization, the people making payments. Someone calls up the colonel and says, hey, you're not getting your tanks because we haven't been paid. He logs onto the system and says, yep, we're paid current on everything. So he starts to go investigate and his folks who were making the payments, when they couldn't figure it out, they deleted it from the system and threw it in a desk. (laughs) Wow. You know, we're always in conflict with somebody having your tags actually matters. The consequence of designing an organization and systems that encourage poor behavior. And Eddie, you made the point, people perform to what they're rewarded for. Uh Yes. This wasn't some grand conspiracy. It's just avoiding getting thumped on in the weekly meeting because you got a bunch of stuff overdue that you can't figure out because there's another problem in the system. Right. So the easiest mechanism for that group of people was just delete it. It's gone and I look good. I think of how many organizations have places where that kind of behavior happens. It's every day in probably most large organizations, someone's doing something like that. Uh-huh. Obviously, armchair quarterly, but that sounds like the case where, you know, at a detailed level, the processes were not designed properly to align. So it was a training class I went to, they called it beating the hog. And it was a big machine when lumber producing, they called it the hog. And whenever they wanted a day off, somebody would feed a really hard piece of lumber into the hog and it would shut down and they'd have to do a repair because the employees were mad at management and then they would feed the hog. If you design a system that is too frustrating for people to get their job done, they will find extremely (laughs) creative ways to get around it. What you want is that creativity to be helping you, not necessarily working working against you. Built-in sabotage. Yeah. We can probably all come up with stories where that's true. So let's jump to succession planning. And Mark, you said early on that when organizations in your process, succession planning is built in. After the health check, as you design the roles, how does succession planning get built in? We strongly encourage a reliance on the proper design, a structural design of the organization, a good blueprint, a good architectural design, if you will, so that we understand what the leadership roles are intended to do and why. A lot of times when we work with clients, what we try to instill in them is what is the story of what you're trying to do and why is it important? There's the collective narrative of this is our mission and our vision. And to accomplish that, we need to do a number of different things in a number of different functional areas. And so we have to start telling that story to ourselves so that we can reflect it back to ourselves. 
so we can see what we're up to and say, is that accurate? We can constantly sort of have this feedback loop to say, is that accurate? So the very first thing that we try to do is to get them into buying into their own narrative and constantly iterating on that script and using a good design as sort of the place to anchor that narrative. So build that scaffolding and anchor that narrative in the actual design. And again, I, I use sports and music because they are just so absolutely concrete that the architects, who are leaders in their own right, the architects of a musical score or an offensive coordinator that's going to set up some specific type of offense in American football, these approaches it just are very structural pieces that everybody can sort of get oriented to. So part of succession planning is rooting in the actual design itself. And as life comes up and as things come up for people, we can transition leaders into roles. We can onboard them. We can offboard them. We can create mentoring groups. We can develop them if we properly understand the parameters of those roles structurally. Another example that we had, an organization that we've had some dealings with call centers as well, just trying to understand what is the role of this call center representative, for example? What, what is that role actually about? What is the supervisor role? Should that person have also subject domain knowledge? Is that the intent? And they become sort of the, you know, the superlative of domain knowledge? Or is that person more of an organizer of just people, a support person? where the representatives are really the subject matter experts. You know, it is a very tough type of conversation because the client had really never thought of it. The representative had become sort of a catch-all. And in terms of metrics, you know, kind of pulling that back in, there were productivity metrics, you know, mixed in with some quality metrics, and there were competing metrics, honestly. So part of good design that we also tried to show was, hey, some roles are designed, have very specific types of outcomes that are ideal for that role. If you have a productivity type of role, then productivity metrics are going to be very important to that role. And so to create continuity and sustainability in those specific roles, those are the things that we're going to have to emphasize and highlight. Same thing with organizational roles, same thing with analytical roles, same thing with roles that look at novelty and look at a little bit of creativity. So you have these different sort of role categories. So to create proper succession planning, this is the theme. I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but it's really getting back to that reliability engineering piece because you can create continuity there. How many times have we seen with clients and have we experienced in our own professional lives, someone leaves with the isolated knowledge capital and they go out the door and that's it. The whole thing falls apart, right? And, you know, it's a choke point. A person as process just, just does not work. It's like, well, Frank had all, Frank knew how to do all that stuff. He did all the patching on that and he's going to retire and nobody else knows how to do it. And so we don't have anybody to do that. If I had a nickel for every time I ran into that, I know I'd be, I'd be on an island right now. So we try to switch the thinking up where succession planning is based on design because again, we can improve what we understand, what we can see, what we can model out. And based on that improvement, we can create fluidity and sustainability in succession. So I want to point then to one of your tools that's the fit for role tool. 
and I've used this with my clients, and we've used it to test in current people in role as well as future folks. If this is what the role should do, then are the people in the role even the right people? Or do we need to realign? That's right. And then if we need to realign or if we're if we're selecting successors, what does the DNA of that successor look like? I can either use it in search or again looking at my next tier of people in the organization, they may not be sitting in the right chairs now for where they are best positioned, especially as the organization's needs are changing. So how do I understand who's on my team? And and in sports teams, I'm assuming people get tested in ways not necessarily position success indicator. You wouldn't put my size person as a defensive anything because I would get squished. That part I know on football, that's maybe it, but (laughs) under 5'3", not in that job. (laughs) From an organizational perspective, poor math skills, not in the engineering department, not in my DNA. Right. I may go in any other number of roles, but probably not engineering. So how we map people really helps identify who's in the selection set Uh for successors. Yeah. Scientifically, not favorites. Also helps address things like DEI and B. I'm not picking you based on any criteria other than your DNA, not cronyism or favoritism or some of the things that end up getting organizations in trouble. That process normalizes the selection criteria and also normalizes how we then get consensus on who to select for roles. There's a formula that we use. We say goals, build roles on top of goals, select your people to fit the roles. Goals, roles, people. If you figured out goals and you figured out roles, then the selection process becomes a lot more normalized and baselined and your ability to be successful to get the right person in the right role for that phase at the right time just you know exponentially increases if you figured out some of those quote unquote harder components it takes the wild westness out of it it takes the bias it takes the favoritism out that's just culturally conditioning our way is to be people oriented that way from our perspective it's an improper use of culture culture systems connect in a very intricate way And a lot of times systems in design and environments can dictate certain aspects of how cultures can flow. We see this in workspace design, right? So if you give somebody a, you know, a 10 by 10 or, you know, a five by five cube, um, and you just sort of spread these randomly out in a grid, how do you think that will affect performance? So structure is very, very impactful for performance culture. That's a really, really big piece. Again, it's, I think, from a paradigm perspective, a little bit different thinking, but a necessary shift for this future of work. We talk about VUCA and agility and the the ability of organizations to move fast. And we have humans with feelings and engagement scores on these things that we really need to attend to. Does this kind of tool, mapping process, org structure and design, does that help accelerate the agility and create a level of trust? I would say absolutely. One of the challenges is defining success, first of all, what success looks like 
And then how do you know that you're designed for success? We encourage leaders, hey, what does a successful scenario, what does optimization look like for you? Okay, great. Let's start with how well are you designed to achieve that optimization? We can start to measure agility. The more aligned an organization is in terms of their orientation, say the configuration of a leadership team or really the entire organization, the more that configuration is aligned to optimally do what needs to be done to be successful, then we can start to test agility. In fact, this is what we do with clients. We can say, hey, you know, we have something like a score that says, hey, you're at 40% agility right now, which means you're trying to grow, but you're really configured to be mostly stabilizing. So here's what you'll need to do. The delta's here. If you get that delta here, you're going to achieve the agility that you need to hit pay dirt. So here's what we need to do to get that agility score up. So we actually have a score for it in some sense, and it's based on the alignment of the organization and how well it aligns to the specific goal of success, whether that's stabilizing the company or if it's growing the company or brand identity. We have what we call a phase model that looks at that and says, hey, your current configuration of the organization is really ideal for internal process improvement or is ideal for a shift in brand identity. It's that type of measurement. That's how we get to agility. In that answer, you've also talked a great deal about alignment. Yeah, it's implicit. Eddie, how about you thinking about how do you ensure alignment, especially in an environment where you need alignment and agility, because we need to shift quickly every facet of our organization when some things happen. So we're not shifting quickly every day, but given certain shocks back to your scenario planning, if this happens, we need to go this way. Going full circle in our conversation, you know, for me, it's a little bit of design is alignment or design is all about the alignment of the organization. I'm 100% agreement with the things that Mark was saying. So if I think about it, starting with the strategy and then going to the metrics, how well you're achieving your metrics is an indicator of your alignment. I don't think you can ensure alignment, but you can monitor alignment. It's the notion of where are the pain points? Where is the organization struggling? That typically is an indicator of something's out of alignment. So one easy way is where are the pain points? The other is looking at just the metrics is where are metrics falling short? Then the other is kind of doing that root cost analysis, understanding the system. Say, if we understand how the organization is designed, we know we're not getting metrics here. We go around and we look at it. Well, is the problem in our strategy? Is it in our process? Is it in our structures? Is it in our rewards? Is it in our people? Right? So it's knowing the components. There's a mental model of what are the parts of the system. And there's lots of different mental models out there. Galvez Star, McKinsey 7S, whichever one you're using is valid. The important thing I think is to have that model and have everybody kind of, at least the people you're working with that are doing the diagnosis, have a shared understanding of that model. And then it's doing the root cause analysis saying, okay, where are we not hitting our metrics? And then looking at it and saying, where's the misalignment? Through doing 
the diagnostics. And here's where it's helpful to have people that are steeped in this work, but oftentimes leaders are, are good at it themselves. Here's where we get into designing and operating. Looking at the alignment is running the organization. You're looking at your metrics. Where are we succeeding? Succeeding or exceeding our goal. Then you know you got alignment there. But looking back and saying, okay, here are some metrics we're falling short. Why is that? And then going back to your components of your organizational system and doing your due diligence and discovering on. I see the problem is partly in our process, partly maybe in the role. Maybe it's not the right fit. You got somebody that's in the, you know, performing a role that they shouldn't be. And once we know someone's in the wrong role, we can often help them shift to the right role. Correct. Yep. This isn't a gotcha process. Right. It's a helping people feel fulfilled in their careers and deliver the results the organization needs from them. Right. That's where you get into the conversation of culture. What kind of culture do you want? A culture that looks after its people. You know, and it's not about punishment. It's about here's where we don't have a fit, not good fit for purpose or for skills and things. It's like, well, where's the better fit? Mark and Eddie, can you tell our listeners where they might learn more about your work? Yes, that's uh, for me, easy, eatmoreconsulting.com. Great way to get a, a sense of how I approach the business and the ILI website. Thank you. Great. Mr. Palmer. Yeah, you can always look me up on LinkedIn. Individually, you can look at our company at higherdirection.com. If you want to learn how we apply this, some of this in real time with some of the tools that we've developed, you can also go to the jobfitcalculator.com and learn a little bit more about that. I was going to add my LinkedIn, Edmund Moore, on LinkedIn. Find me E-D-M-U-N-D. So thank you to our listeners for joining us. There's a lot going on as we think about the volume of change we're facing now and that it continues to accelerate. So we strive to give you relevant information each week for daily leadership tidbits from us and from our guests. Be sure to follow us on the Innovative Leadership Institute on LinkedIn. Please also like us and share us. Maureen, thank you for having us. Yes. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Maureen. I've uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Mark, and the behind the scenes, Dan. Thanks, everybody. Thank you both. Thank you.